This podcast is for adults 21 years of age or older. We talk about cannabis history and advertise cannabis products. If you're not 21, come back when you are. Spoke Media. Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah. And Bean. And welcome back for yet another episode of Great Moments in Weed History on this podcast. My partner, Bean, and I, who are both cannabis journalists and media makers, go over some of the more fascinating points in the long, 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 long history of human beings and cannabis. Isn't that right, Bean? That is precisely what we do. Yep. And I don't know the story we're going to hear today. Bean has written and researched it, and I'm going to be hearing it fresh along with you. We're going to smoke some weed. We're going to drink some tasty beverages. We're going to have a good time. So come join us. Bean, what do you got for us today? Oh, I've got a classic destined to be a classic episode of Great Moments in Weed History because it is about true weed icons Mm. before they were weed icons, nay, how they became weed icons by fighting back against the man and along the way creating a unique American weed way of life. I think that is the recipe for how you become a weed icon. You got to stick it to the man. You got to change the way people look at cannabis. This sounds pretty exciting. My mind is running wild with anticipation. Uh, I'm rolled up over here. I, I twisted us up a couple of J's because, you know, these times there's coronavirus afoot. So we're encouraging people to smoke their own. You know what I'm saying? Just for now, we'll go back to sharing joints when this all blows over. That's a quick little PSA from GMI WH to you. Keep it safe out there. And of course, you know, we're rolled up and ready to fire one up here in the studio. Uh, Nay, fire two up here in the studio. Mm -hmm. If you're not quite there yet, this is the point in the program where I advise you to hit pause, uh, roll up a joint, pack a bowl, split a blunt, do what you do in the dabs that you do them. Do them. So if you're ready. And we're ready. Then I think it's time. For another. Great moment in weed history. So we're talking about weed icons. I love weed icons. We talk about weed icons all the time on this show. So my mind is running wild with guesses. Can I get a couple hints, Bean? Yeah, well, all right. I'll tell you this. Our story begins on January 14th, 1967. Okay, 1967. So it's the era of hippie culture in America, the civil rights movement, whole lot of stuff going on. Definitely some cannabis activism. Definitely some sticking it to the man. Uh, Let's hear some more. Yeah, and and also an era when the man was sticking it back pretty hard, too. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) So is Nixon president at this point? It was uh, LBJ, Lyndon Johnson. Okay, cool. So a lot happening. Uh, What else is going on? Our story begins in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco with an event called the Human Being. Ah, okay. So this is a pretty legendary thing. I think anyone even remotely familiar with 
the scene in San Francisco back in the 60s, uh, the be-in was definitely one of the events you hear about. Yeah, most definitely a legendary event, and and I have to say, there's a little there's a little pun in there if you listen carefully. The human bee in. Oh right, I didn't catch that the first <laughs> time at all. The human bee in, got it. <laughs> Shout out to my brother or sister in punnery who came up with that one. <laughs> Friend of the podcast. So the human bee in gathered together thirty thousand early adopting hippies in Golden Gate Park in mm. San Francisco for this sort of free-form happening. This is before corporate music festivals. This is two years before Woodstock. This is really a spontaneous outgrowth of this youth culture that's already happening in San Francisco. Wow. And then, you know, th this term happenings, right? I feel like it's something I associate with that time. What is a happening exactly? I mean, it is this hippie term. And, and, and when I say, you know, no corporate rock festivals, what that really means is these events and these gatherings are coming up from the underground. Right. And they're not quite so controlled and they're not quite so rigid. It's not like, oh, I'm going to go to the Sprite stage now and see this band. It's, mm -hmm. it's an outgrowth of the spontaneity of the counterculture of the time. Right. Interesting. Wow. So this really was the place to be at this time. I mean, San Francisco is the center of this cultural movement. Golden Gate Park is essentially the center of San Francisco in some ways. It's right next to this iconic American landmark. Uh, and it's just humans being. Yeah. And it's, it's before, this is sort of the first almost coming out party of this of this scene and this movement 30,000 people in one place now wow. we we think of that now you know obviously there's sports events in x and y and z but in terms of just 30,000 people coming together uh in a time before the internet this event had no sponsorships this event had no tickets it was all promoted through the underground and so what you would have experienced at the at this be in was you'd get speeches from people like the poet Allen Ginsberg or mm. uh, the comedian and activist Dick Gregory or sort of these psychedelic icons this was the first place that Timothy Leary made his very famous statement turn on tune in and drop out Turn on, tune in, and drop out. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I knew it was some combination. <laughs> and these are just local rock bands at the time. So they've got followings, but they're literally just like the local rock bands from San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Just so happens to be Jefferson Airplane. The Grateful Dead. Uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company with Janis Joplin. Wow, what a scene. Yeah, uh, Quicksilver Messenger Service. <laughs> Not as familiar with them, but I'm sure they're dope. You know, they're obviously in good company. And at the time, they were like the, almost the headliner. They didn't quite last the way everyone did. And then do you know Blue Cheer? No, I don't. Oh, they're like very influential. Basically, the White Stripes are like the modern Blue Cheer. If you go back and oh. listen to Blue Cheer. So it's like a garagey kind of like rock sound. Yeah, hard rocking. And, you know, they, they are all the sort of San Francisco sound that we know about now. Now, but just coming up from the underground, this is really the sort of coming out party for this whole scene. Oh, wow. Holy shit. 
You want it to get a little spicier? Oh, yes, please. <laughs> so also in attendance was underground chemist Stanley Owsley. Ah, Stanley Owsley. Now, this guy is a legend, and I know this because my stepdad, Hugh, was at Woodstock, and he has told me a lot about Owsley Stanley. In fact, he's told me the same story two to three times <laughs> at this point. So I, I know it. Fairly well, but this guy was not only a master chemist, he also designed the sound system that the Grateful Dead used on live tours, a sound system that took like two days in advance of setup from each show, leading them to have to develop this insane logistic plan and just for the <laughs> Grateful Dead to ever tour. That's a fucking renaissance man of 1967 right there, man. <laughs> and these two skill sets dovetail and support each other. He was uh, under the influence of LSD as he was creating this new, it was called the Wall of Sound. Yeah, this right, right, right. Incredible sound Not to be confused with the production technique of Phil Spector. This is like Owsley Stanley's live wall of sound. So Owsley's there and he decides I'm just going to make a massive batch of my legendary white lightning LSD right. and give it out to anybody who wants it. Yeah, that was how they did it back then. In fact, Hugh, my stepdad, told me that the acid was like 50 cents, maybe a dollar a hit, which is equivalent to the $5, $10 you might spend on it today. But at a lot of these gatherings and parties, it was just free. I mean, the point of it if you do a couple hits of acid, the concept of money starts to get <laughs> kind of weird and feel like, you know, like not real at all, which in fact it is not real. Uh, and you kind of see that when you're tripping. So, you know, you just want to give it away. So we have this heady brew happening mm -hmm. in Golden Gate Park where you've got Timothy Leary telling you to drop out of society. Mm. You've got Big Brother and the Holding Company and Janis Joplin rocking the fuck out. Some guy just gave you incredibly pure LSD for free. And guess guess how many cops were assigned to monitor this event? Um, I'm going to go low because, uh, you know, I feel like this is before hippies really got on the authorities' radar. Five? Yeah, uh, I'm going to say everything you said is accurate, except it was two. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And this is how they sort of got on the radar. Ah. So what, what had been happening is, you know, uh, this neighborhood, Haight-Ashbury, had, you know, this was, in, in a way, it's a sort of a psychedelic gentrification. There were all these cheap Victorian houses. Hippies flooded in. They started creating this culture. It was flourishing. And then, boom. 30,000 people in the park, two cops, goes off without a hitch, everything's cool and groovy. What happens when everything's cool and groovy? Oh, man, the two cops turn into 200 <laughs> cops. Whoop, whoop. Yeah, as, as often happens in our great moments, uh, and this, just stick with us. This is a story about redemption and joy and sticking it to the man. But what happens is the two cops in the park are pretty cool. Yeah. But... Word gets out, this crazy thing is happening, and leaving the park, over a hundred people get arrested. Oh. On various charges, ranging from possession of marijuana to, to these bullshit charges like loitering. Uh, you know, the cops began their repression. Drinking in public, this kind of thing. 
Yes. And so this prompted a group of idealistic young counterculture lawyers to step up and defend all these hippies. And so what happens is these lawyers see what's happening, they see what's coming, and they form something called the Haight-Ashbury Legal Organization, or HALO, which is a pro bono team of attorneys, and they're not just helping with these weed cases, uh, but they're also defending people who are getting arrested at anti-Vietnam War protests. So HALO has more work than they can handle because when the human being happens, not only does it happen for those 30,000 people in the park, but it becomes this media spectacle. Yeah. It is covered all over the world, all over the country. It's a big part of how all these young people start flooding to San Francisco. If you remember that pretty lame song, if you're going to San Francisco. This is what kicks all of that off. To the hippies, it's a real mixed bag. It brings in a lot of energy, but it brings in a lot of people who don't really share the ideals and just want sex and drugs and and wild times. Right. That actually sounds like, uh, you know, in modern times as well. You know what I mean? It's like when you go to events around a cause or around activism, you do feel like there's a subset of the crowd that's just there for the for the party or for the scene or something, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so this brings a huge number of people into San Francisco and it it, it takes basically there'd been this long simmering tension between the authorities, specifically the police, but City Hall at all mm-hmm. on one side and and this burgeoning hippie counterculture movement And the human being, these simmering tensions start to boil over. Mm -hmm. The cops have had enough. They want to put a lid on the pot. Yeah. And Halo has all of these cases. So they actually set up a office in a Victorian at 710 Ashbury Street. Okay, so they're setting up shop. They're ready to defend some fucking rights. So what do you think the cops do? Raid the office? In October of 1967. (laughs) No, I was right. (laughs) Now, in October of 1967, the police set up the house at 710 Ashbury for a weed bust. Now, do you know who also lived in that same house? Oh, my God. Is this the person? This is this is our 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 core group of world-changing young people who fight the man and create their Mm. own culture and spread it around the world. Wow. Okay. I mean, you know, like we've done an episode on Dennis Perone, who, you know, I assume was somewhere adjacent to this whole scene. I don't know if he was there yet. Spread it all over the world, huh? Hmm. Through music. Oh, through music. So it's a musician. Is it the Grateful Dead? Ding! Oh, no kidding. They lived in the fucking house? (laughs) They lived in the trap house. (laughs) Oh, no shit. Wow. Oh, okay. Interesting. Wow. They are the the brand of this culture that has really made it all the way around the world. You know what I mean? You see love of the music. You see their live recordings and albums. You see their logos, whether it's the Bears or the Lightning Skull or, you know, like uh, any of the other myriad imagery that they've got out in the world. It really did export this type of vibe everywhere, which is pretty amazing. That's a huge thing, not only for cannabis, but just for this state of mind. 
that is still very much alive today, I would say. So this story is going to be about the Grateful Dead who get pulled in to this weed bust that mm. also targets Halo. And I just want to say we're going to probably have other Grateful Dead episodes of this podcast before right. we're done. They took part in a lot of weed history. Yeah, I'm going to run down a few quick ones. These are little quick hits. All right. Things that I found while I was researching this story. Oh, fun. Yeah. They toured Europe in 1972 and they designed, they had designed for them a specific, so they've got all, It's this is this wall of sound, this huge system of amplifiers and cords and all this stuff. And they made the manufacturers make a special amp for them to smuggle weed in just for them <laughs> to have on this tour. And they were basically like, make us this amp, you know, you sh you put the you put the hidden compartments in it. Yeah. If we can find them ourselves, we're not no paying, good. <laughs> we're not paying for the amp. <laughs> but if we can't, we'll pay you generously. Uh, oh my god! And so this whole legendary there's an album Grateful Dead Live in Europe 1972. That whole tour was fueled by many things, but I'm sure among them weed from this amplifier. Wow. Another uh, big intersection between not just even the Grateful Dead, but Deadheads and the Dead touring is that this was how really, really high-grade cannabis and cannabis seeds spread from California, Northern California, where the dead were from, all across the country. Oh, I've heard some legends of this. The least of which is certainly not the story of how a very, very important and influential and ubiquitous New York strain originally came from bag seeds from a pound of weed that was sold from a dead tour. And that's the origin of sour diesel. Yeah, Chemdog. Chemdog. Which begat Sour Diesel. This is like that section in the Bible. Yeah, yeah. Chemdog begat Sour Diesel. Sour <laughs> Diesel begat. And begat many, many things. Many things. Yeah. And so this is a point in the story where I'm a fan of the Grateful Dead. I actually got to see one of their last tours as a pretty young person. Oh. But if you aren't, you know, and many people aren't, you might not be a fan of the music. You do need to know that the role that they played in spreading cannabis yep. and and cannabis consciousness and cannabis seeds mm -hmm. around the country is very very significant. Yeah, 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 <laughs> seriously. And I mean, look up that story if you're curious of how Chemdog began and thereby how Sour Diesel began because it's really fascinating and those are not only important strains, but very, very tasty strains. Ooh, some of my favorites. Yes. Um, this is also where 420 spread. And, and we, we talk about mm. that in our 420 episode from season one. Here's just a quick hit that's that, that meant a lot to me. Uh, mm. Maybe my favorite author. And I actually met him on a park bench once and he told me this story because I told him I was working at High Times. Mm -hmm. The only time Kurt Vonnegut ever smoked a joint in his life was with the Grateful Dead. Oh, no way. I guess that's the only, if there's going to be only one time, that's when it would be. Uh, that's pretty crazy. I mean, honestly, judging from Kurt Vonnegut's work, I would have figured he'd indulged a little bit more. Yeah, no. And, and that was pretty much what he said. He was like, well, I figured if I'm ever going to smoke a joint. <laughs> <laughs> This is it. And and we're going to get back to our, our main story, but just to show how central cannabis was to this band and to this scene, mm -hmm. um, 
So the very first time that Jerry Garcia, you know, pretty much the leader of the Grateful Dead, although he would hate that term leader. Right, right. Uh, and Bob Weir, the other guitarist and singer, and, yeah. the, and the bassist Phil Lesh, the first time they ever met, guess what it was for? Uh, to buy a pound? Just a sesh, man. Oh, just a sesh. <laughs> so yeah. Here's here's Phil Lesh describing the first time those three people came together in the same place. Mm -hmm. uh, and Phil Lesh said, I remember the first time I met Bob Weir very well. I was standing around talking with Jerry, and I asked him, well, where's the weed, man? And Jerry said, my guitar player's coming with some weed any minute now. So we go outside and get in the car, and there's Bob, who had apparently just scored from Neil Cassidy. We sat in the car and rolled up and got good and high. It was killer weed. Ah, oh, that's pretty awesome. Makes a lot of sense that that's what brought them together in the first place. Yeah, that is the origin story of the Grateful Dead right there. Very simple one, but uh, it's very pointed. You know? <laughs> so now we're going to pick our story up on October 2nd, 1967. This is the day that the bust happened at 710 Ashbury. Mm. And these are the words of the Grateful Dead's manager, Rock Scully, in his book, Living with the Dead. And so he's describing what was going on that day. Jerry Garcia and Mountain Girl, who was his girlfriend at the time, uh, mm. later his wife, have just scored a big block of Acapulco gold. Oh, right. Legendary weed. Yeah, these are the super sativa strains of the 60s. Uh, mm. This was the best stuff that was available at the time. Um, so they just scored this big block of Acapulco gold wrapped in beautiful blue cellophane, which was new. <laughs> right. <laughs> Colored cellophane. <laughs> wave of the future. Cellophane. This is, so this is still Rock Scully. It's the happiest weed imaginable. And we also had some really second-rate cannabis Americanus out on the table in the house. Ooh, Cannabis Americanus, an offshoot that we rarely <laughs> see today. Uh, what exactly was it? Well, this is very interesting. So now we think of the cannabis growers of Northern California as, as some of, if not the premier cannabis growers in the world. But going all the way back to the 60s, they hadn't yet developed the strains that would flourish in that climate. Right. So people would get their bag seed from these uh, sativas from Mexico or South America. They try to grow them in Northern California, but uh, because those are tropical strains, they're not really going to thrive in that kind of like mountain environment. Yeah. And, yeah. and so they needed the Kush weed from India, which they eventually brought over there and that thrived there and yielded some of the best strains we have now. Yeah, absolutely. But at the time, homegrown was a derogatory term. Oh. And so then this is cheekily saying cannabis Americanus to, to distinguish it from these much uh, oh. better weed coming from Mexico. Gotcha. And uh, he says, yeah, this, this other weed was real stringy with lots of seeds and stems. So Jerry and Mountain Girl were sitting in the pantry with a colander out on the counter cleaning this weed from Mount Shasta in California mm. and rolling some doobies when knock, knock, knock on the door. And it's this guy, Hermit, who's like a local counterculture figure hanging around San Francisco. Gotcha. And what's Hermit got to say? Well, let's just say Hermit's not going to be a friend of the podcast. Oh, no. Hermit. I mean. Come I on. Your name made you sound cool. <laughs> It did. I, I, you know, I'm half hermit as it is already. <laughs> uh, so, but yeah, hermit had been pretty busy that day. 
He'd been recruited as a snitch. <sighs> and by the time he got to their house that day, he'd already led the police to three different houses full of sort of known weed heads. Oh, and he no. set them all up like bowling pins for a series of busts. Oh, Hermit. Hermit! Her- Why'd you do it, Hermit? <laughs> no! And, you know, it's, this is, of course, you know, a technique of the authorities to fuck with these communities. Not like this, Hermit. Not like this, Hermit. So at 710 Ashbury, Hermit walks through the door, which is always unlocked. Mm. Um, So, like, now, this is an era in the Grateful Dead's history where, you know, they're well-known around San Francisco. They play a lot. They can get, you know, hundreds of people to come out and see them on a Tuesday night. But they're not even known beyond San Francisco, and they're certainly not famous or icons. There are, you know, a bunch of musicians. You and I have, I'm sure, had this experience hundreds of times of going over to the house where musicians are hanging out. He just pop in, yeah. Just pops in. And so he walks through the door. It's unlocked. Jerry and Mountain Girl are, like, cleaning the seeds and stems out of weed for our younger listeners. Oh, man. So you guys don't even know. <laughs> you don't even know what we went through. We used to pick away at it, and 30% of the weight of your bag was seeds and stems, and what was left over was about 20% as good as anything you can get today. <laughs> and you know what? We smoked it, and we liked it. We loved it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so Hermit rolls in, and he asks, hey, you know, can I uh, roll myself a joint for the road, which is sort of the flower power equivalent of popping in to borrow a cup of sugar. Yeah. Oh, Hermit, you son of a And uh, so here's how a Rolling Stone reporter... Uh, described what happened next, which was uh, actually a story printed in the very first issue of Rolling Stone. Mm. Just to show you how everything is bubbling up at once. They were like, this shit was so fucked up, they started a whole goddamn (laughs) magazine just to talk about it. (laughs) It's a big story. So here's how this Rolling Stone reporter described it. Eight narcotics agents followed by a dozen reporters and television crews raided the dead's house at 710 Ashbury Street. The cops carried no warrant and broke in the front door even after being denied entry. Okay, yeah, so they're breaking in. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's what's happening there. Yes. Uh, so two members of the band, Pigpen and Bob Weir, the band's two managers, their equipment manager, and six friends were busted that day on dope charges. Uh, we should mention... Do- Linus, Lucy, Charlie... <laughs> We should mention dope was a common, you know, name for weed back then. Now it's associated with other things more, but... Yeah, it either means heroin or awesome, (laughs) strangely enough. Yes. And the police also confiscated the files, uh, money, and phone books of the band and of the Haight-Ashbury Legal Organization, whose offices, as we said, were in the dead's house. Uh, While the narcs did their work... A rooting section gathered on the sidewalk across the street from the house and, like a Greek chorus, filled the air with a running commentary on the proceedings. Oh, wow. Okay, so you're in San Francisco. If you had a be-in with 30,000 people at it, you better believe there's enough people there 
to come out and get pissed off in public when something like this is happening. That's great. Yeah, they're taking it to the streets. One of the people who was arrested that day uh, was uh, rock photographer Rosie McGee, hmm. which is a pretty awesome name. It is a very cool photographer name specifically. Mm, absolutely. Um, and she was also the girlfriend of bassist Phil Lesh. Hmm. And she actually was unlucky enough to show up at the house while the bust was in, in progress. She went out to pick up the mail. Oh, shit. And she comes back, and this is how she described what happened next in her memoir, uh, which was called Dancing with the Dead. Mm. By that time, the Grateful Dead were known to some as the Pied Pipers of a drug-fueled lifestyle, and 710 Ashbury was famous enough to have gray line tour buses stopping in front of it at least once a day. <laughs> wow, wait, so people were actually, like, bussing into town just to check this whole scene out? Yeah, you could book a tour. And these were not like wannabe hippies going to check this out. They were tourists. They were like the straightest people looking for a freak show. The favorite pastimes of the hippies, besides taking drugs, are demonstrations and partying, seminars, and groups of discussions. Oh. And one of the cool things that the hippies started doing was uh, they would hold up mirrors <laughs> <laughs> and be like, you're the freak show. That's awesome. We're just living our lives. That's uh, very cool. So Rosie says, so it wasn't surprising that the dead, uh, given all this attention, uh, were at the top of a must bust list for the local cops. Rosie says, I was climbing the stairs of the front porch at 710 Ashbury wholly unaware that my friend Sue was in the front window frantically trying to warn me away. Oh, man. She didn't see yeah, it. Yeah. Sue, frankly, he should have tried harder. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like you're just waving with your hand up there. No one ever looks at the, at the top right window of a house, you know? Or she, she might have just thought Sue was, you know, like hippie noodle dance. Yeah, grooving. she's like, yeah, she's always doing that. <laughs> oh, she's gesticulating wildly? Yeah. Oh, far out. I gotta get in on some of that. <laughs> <laughs> so by the time I saw Sue, it was too late. As soon as my feet hit the landing at the top of the stairs, the cops pulled me into the house and arrested me too. Fuck. I was brought to the kitchen where a small group of us sat at a table listening to the footsteps of the cops who were searching the upstairs bedrooms. A bored cop blocked the kitchen door, but he had his back to us. Now, here's where Rosie gets from cool to super fucking oh, cool. Oh, <laughs> shit. A cop's back is turned and she's about to get super cool? Holy fuck. And she says, I was petrified, and this is very 1967, because underneath my poncho, I had a giant ball of hashish in my purse. <laughs> underneath my poncho. That's so fucking good. <laughs> and I didn't want it to be found. So when Sue, and here comes Sue back to, mm -hmm. with some redemptive action. Mm -hmm. uh, when Sue asked if anybody wanted ice cream and headed to the freezer with a stack of bowls, I saw an out. Mm -hmm. And any guesses how? how so, <laughs> all right. On the low, she passes off the ball of hashish to Sue. Sue goes over to the freezer, takes out the ice cream, pushes the ball of hash all the way into the back <laughs> of the freezer, closes it and comes back to the table. Rosie goes harder than that. Oh, shit. <laughs> Sue handed me a bowl of vanilla ice cream, and I crumbled the entire ball of hash into it and mixed it up. Slowly and somewhat stupidly, 
I ate the whole thing, <laughs> all while keeping an eye on the cop's back. You know what? That's the best place to hide weed. About an hour later, after she eats this hashish, you know, she's being marched out of the house. She's handcuffed to Bob Weir. Mm-hmm. Uh, they marched them out in pairs, handcuffed to each other, perp-walking them. I feel like that was the name of his, like, fourth solo album. <laughs> handcuffed to Bob Weir. <laughs> That was his BDSM concept album. (laughs) Didn't sell well. And so, you know, also all the media has been tipped off in advance. So there's, you can see a photo of them marching down the stairs. And uh, Bob Weir sort of has, you know, two of their hands are handcuffed to each other. He's got his hand out, palm up, sort of being like, you can't get me down, cops. Yeah. And she is hiding behind her bags, (laughs) stoned as fuck. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's the last situation you want to be in after you've eaten edibles. But unfortunately, when you do it to destroy the evidence, that shit's going to happen. That shit is definitely going to happen. Um, So along with everybody else who got arrested in the house, Rosie is loaded, uh, you know, uh, figuratively and literally, <laughs> into a paddy wagon. And they're all driven to Central Booking, where poor young Rosie had to be propped up between two of her fellow defendants to keep from just falling out entirely. Oh, man. That is the worst place to be after you ate mm-hmm. a bunch of edibles. But... You know what? It's better than her getting arrested for the giant ball of hash. You know what I mean? It's like no evidence, no crime. Hopefully she'll be out of there soon. Yeah, Rosie's going to be just fine, everybody. Maybe I should have said that earlier. Uh, (laughs) But she wouldn't talk for the next four days. She was unable to form a sentence. Yeah, the cops were like, where'd you get all the drugs? And she's like, I I literally can't talk (laughs) right now. She thinks she's making this explanation. (laughs) Nothing's coming out. Uh, And so she later said, you know, so you know that bench they make you wait on while you're waiting to get processed? Oh, yeah. Picture her between two of her, you know, fellow hippies who are shouldering, leaning into her so that she doesn't fall over. And she says, by the time we were getting fingerprinted, I was melting onto the floor and they were holding me up. To this day, I still don't eat vanilla ice cream. Oh, yeah. How could you after this shit? Oh, my God. Also arrested that day was band manager Danny Rifkin. And while this was a very, very rough day for him, he got arrested. About half of the Grateful Dead got arrested. They have to go down to the station. Rosie's falling out. But when Danny got back to the house, he made a pretty uh, happy discovery. Hmm. What did he discover? The cops forgot to take something? Or what was going on? Yeah, well, the cops took all the swaggy weed that had been out on the kitchen table, Mm -hmm. but they missed entirely that 2.2-pound brick of Acapulco gold that was... Oh, (laughs) snap. They didn't get it all. That's the kind of like, you know, uh, the victory lap sometimes. I remember in high school when, you know, you have a run-in with the police, some of your drugs get taken, and then, you know, you really hope for the kind of ending where you're like... They didn't get it all. You know what I mean? Like, there's something left over. There's something left for us. That's fucking fantastic. Yeah, and especially when they took the swag and missed the dank. Yeah, man, seriously. (laughs) Uh, So Danny Rifkin, who is definitely a friend of this podcast, you know, the first thing he does is he calls Halo, 
these lawyers who had their offices there, but none of them were there when the bust happened. And he starts planning the Grateful Dead's legal defense. And then with the unanimous support from the band, he decides to go a step further and arrange a press conference to be held right at 710 Ashbury, where they are going to, the Grateful Dead are all going to step up, even the ones who weren't arrested, and they are going to denounce this bust as unjust and counterproductive and an affront to their rights and their and their whole way of living. Yeah, fucking awesome. This I can definitely get behind. Get in there. Fucking get in public and, you know, speak out about the injustice. Yeah. Now, one thing Danny Rifkin really wants, you know, he he really wants to make a statement. He's not a writer, but he knows a writer. And so he goes to an old friend of his to write up this manifesto against the cops and against the war on weed. And I'll give you 700,000 guesses who it is. Because it's somebody who you would think doesn't fit into this story. Really? Wow. Holy shit. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm putting on my surprise hat. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even going to guess. Just tell me. I'll give you a few hints. Principal Skinner, Derek Smalls of the band Spinal Tap. Oh, a fucking uh, Harry Shearer? Harry Shearer. What? <laughs> yeah. And when we come back, we're going to have to take a break. We're going to get paid to smoke a little weed for ourselves. I'm going to tell you how he got pulled into this, and we're going to hear from him directly about what? how that all went down. Holy shit, that's fucking insane. <laughs> I did not see that coming. I can't wait to hear how Harry Shearer, famous voice on The Simpsons, is involved in this story. We'll be right back. Smoke weedia. So when we last left off, there was about to be a big old press conference at 710 Ashbury in San Francisco. A lot of people involved here. The Grateful Dead are on the scene. And then there's kind of an unexpected attendee here, Harry Shearer from Spinal Tap and The Simpsons. And Bean, you actually talked to him? Yeah, I was. I, he, he wanted to come in. It, we weren't able to work that out, but he was very kind and generous, talked with me on the phone told me the whole story from his point of view. And so we'll, you know, be able to hear from him directly throughout this. And it's a part of the story that's really never been told. Dude, that's fucking crazy. I can't wait to hear his voice. You know what I mean? Because that's like (laughs) an iconic voice. He kind of sounds like Principal Skinner a little bit. If you've ever heard him on like NPR, like he does some shit here and there on the radio. Excellent. He's got a very distinct voice. So this is going to be pretty cool. Uh, Yeah, let's go. Yeah, so so the the basic way he gets pulled into all of this was member Danny Rifkin, yeah. uh, the Grateful Dead's manager, the one who decides to hold this press conference. Well, I had been friends with uh, Danny Rifkin, um, who was the co-manager of the Grateful Dead, along with uh, Rock Scully. Uh, Danny had uh, come to UCLA and. Uh, 
came over to the Daily Bruin where I was an editor. He was under my supervision, such as it was, as a cub reporter, such as they were. And we got to be friends. He's a very smart guy and a great sense of humor. We got along great. You know, he was at that point living in, in Sacramento, not that far away. So he would drive to San Francisco and hang out at 710 Ashbury and... Uh, as he said, smoke the Acapulco gold with them and and vibe on that scene and went to tons of dead shows and was like, you know, somebody who was known around the house. Wow. No shit. Incredible. So uh, what did he say when you talked to him? Man, he, I mean, he talked about what it was like, the vibe in the house. I, I said, you know, was it was it like. Did it seem like a common thing or did it seem like you were at the crux of this emerging culture? And he was like, you know, to be honest, it really did feel special in real time. Mm, yeah, man, that was one of those times and places I don't think you can ever really recapture, you know? Yeah. And, you know, not just the weed part of it and not just the music part of it, but this idea that a new way of living was was emerging. And he mm -hmm. just talked about, you know, long sessions of hanging out and smoking and talking about everything from music to politics to philosophy to this really expansive vibe of, of artists and free thinkers. Mm. And so then when this bust happened, he was actually down in Los Angeles. He was working as a, a high school teacher in Compton. You know, he was the Grateful Dead were well known as a band in San Francisco, but not famous. Harry Shearer was not famous at all. You right. know, he wasn't even working in entertainment at the time. Oh. Uh, but he really saw an opportunity to put his craft as a writer to good use. Mm. Uh, and he said, absolutely, I will write this statement for you. And he sat down and uh, I think enjoyed some herbal stimulation in the writing process. <laughs> And he wrote this uh, statement that is so ahead of its time. A person convicted for possession of marijuana can be sentenced to up to 30 years in jail. But the real danger to society as well as to thousands of individuals comes from a law that is so seriously out of touch with reality. And the law creates an even greater evil. It encourages the most outrageously discriminatory type of law enforcement. That is the arm of these types of laws. You know what I mean? Like, that's how they actually physically and personally impact individuals, you know? And I love sometimes there's these stories about legalization where they're like, oh, you know, we've all kind of come to realize that this plant is is beneficial and that the laws against it were unjust as if we just figured that out. And yeah. he, here they are saying it in 1967. They knew. And he goes on. If the lawyers, doctors... Advertising men, teachers, and political office holders who use marijuana were arrested today. The law might well be off the books before Thanksgiving, but the police, in making arrests, prefer to concentrate on individuals who have been manufactured by the mass media into a group that typifies the now popular image of the drug-oriented hippie. Afraid of people who are exploring new ways of living freely, the larger society has created a mythical danger and called it a felony. And the people who enforce the law use it almost exclusively against the individuals who threaten their idea of the way people should look and act. This way, the American people are protected by the police and the media from the fact that the law is a lie. The hippie, as created by the mass media, is a lie as well. The result is a series of lies and myths that prop each other up. Behind all the myths is the reality. The Grateful Dead are people engaged in constructive, creative effort in the musical field, and this house is where we work as well as our residence. 
Because the police fear and misinterpret us, our effort is now being interrupted as we deal with the consequences of a harassing arrest. The arrests were made under a law that classifies smoking marijuana along with murder, rape, and armed robbery as a felony. Yet almost anyone who has ever studied marijuana seriously and objectively has agreed that marijuana is the least harmful chemical used for pleasure and life enhancement. Yeah, that's what we've been saying this whole time. It is the least harmful chemical for pleasure and life enhancement. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's such a simple message. But yeah, I mean, like you said, very little has changed between now and then. This is still the message that people who are out there fighting for cannabis justice are saying. Yeah, and if we think it's, you know, it is often, and especially depending on where you live and your life situation, it's still hard to speak up about these sort of obvious truths. Mm -hmm. But we're going back now to a time when support for legalization was below 20%, yeah. and, and a significant number of people really thought that hippies got stoned and ate babies. Yeah, seriously. No. I mean, that's where the propaganda was at. There was a huge effort to make people think like that. So that that's the end of the statement. And then after he read the statement, Grateful Dead manager Danny Rifkin, Harry's friend, mm -hmm. took questions from the press. Danny, I have two questions. Time ago to move to, to Mexico in the group. Yeah, we're still planning to do that. You know, when we find the point. What is the effect of your business on this arrest? Have you had any no effect at all. No one has called in or canceled or... No. no. no apparently it doesn't upset anybody. Yeah, but we've had a lot of and then this is according to Grateful Dead historian Dennis McNally. This is what happened next. Mm -hmm. A bowl of whipped cream, a spoon jammed into it, was placed in front of Rifkin during the press conference, but it wasn't meant for any sudden attack of the munchies. Mm. One of the reporters asked... How long did it take to grow your hair that long, Danny? This is one of the first questions they get. Jeez. And Danny replies, We always figured that if we ever held a press conference, the first reporter to ask us a really, really stupid question would get a pie in the face, and you're him. Oh, my God. So, you know, this is the second time that a pieing has happened uh, in great moments in weed history. The first time was, of course, Tom Fursad, who pied uh, some sort of government official. It was wait, wasn't it at like a congressional uh, like testimony? Yeah, it was a congressional hearing on obscenity. And he expressed himself through the classic First Amendment technique of throwing a pie in the face of a sitting congressman. Holy shit. <laughs> and here we are again, another great moment in weed history, another pie in the face. Well, the other reporters cheered at the idea that one of their colleagues was going to get a whipped cream pie in the face. But Danny Rifkin's compassion apparently took over and he spared this lunkhead his just desserts. Oh, but they man. Did. Cooler heads, huh? Cooler heads prevailed. But in the weeks after the bust at 710 Ashbury, the SFPD actually ratcheted up their enforcement campaign, but the Grateful Dead absolutely refused to back down. Even after the charges against them were dropped because this was such a bullshit bust, from felonies to very small fines, the band continued to speak out on the issue. They continued to hold the police to account, and they played a marijuana defense benefit along with Quicksilver Messenger Service and Big Brother and the Holding Company that raised money not just for their defense. They only ended up with small fines but to help pay for the defense of everybody in the community through these lawyers at Halo. 
That's awesome. So it's a fundraiser, essentially, for these, like, civil rights lawyers. Yes, absolutely. And Michael Stefanian, uh, who I've actually met, friend of the podcast, super cool dude, who was one of these lawyers and a legendary criminal defense attorney, he really said this was a turning point when the dead decided to push back Mm. rather than roll over when they took it to the court of public opinion and laid the facts on the table. Mm -hmm. It made the police start to back down. Um, Obviously, it was a long process of backing down, uh, but he really called it a turning point in the way the authorities interacted with these hippies. And of course, from then on, San Francisco was at the forefront of this legalization movement. Wow, no kidding. So this was the beginning of the kind of official like cannabis movement uh, that sprouted from San Francisco and really led to the first medical marijuana law. I mean, 30 years later here in California, which then started spreading to other places. So, I mean, this is a really integral moment when you look at legalization in the entire country. Not just an integral moment, but a great moment and a turning point that made San Francisco the forefront of the cannabis legalization movement. And because we're talking about the Grateful Dead here, we can actually play ourselves out on this episode with a righteous jam recorded live at their 1967 marijuana benefit concert. So for you listening at home, go listen to some Grateful Dead and smoke another joint. Uh, Thanks so much for hanging out with us. We'll see you next time on Great Moments in Weed History. Great Moments in Weed History is a Spoke Media production. It's hosted by me, David Bienenstock, a.k.a. Bean, and Abdullah Saeed. We're produced by Cody Hoffmachel with help from Reyes Mendoza, Trey Jones, and Carson McCain. This episode was mixed by Jonathan Villalobos. Our executive producers are Aliyah Tavakolian and Keith Reynolds. We're recorded at Gold Digger Studio by Gabe Wilhelm. Shout out to our patrons on Patreon. Thanks so much. If you want to follow us on social media, we're at GMIWH Podcast on all platforms. Check out our show notes for links to our sponsors. You can support us by supporting them. Thanks for listening. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com, and that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.